heard this word. Oh, yeah. Can I read that? Oh, there it is, that image is quite infilling. But someone somewhere is planning to use you as a sermon illustration. <laughs> I don't know whether I would ever do that. <laughs> There's not enough of it. I could use Ains Kim David. They wouldn't know. Or they might know now. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to focus today on the idea of the sheep nation. But I've got a question for you. Have a look at the next slide. Can you tell me if that is a sheep or a goat? Is it a sheep or a goat? We might have a vote. Hands up all those who think it is a sheep. Wow, Ooh, you're in a bit of a minority. How about a goat? Whoa, you're sitting on the fence? It's a goat. That's a goat. Well, would it help if I told you the name of this animal was goatee? Yeah. But guess what? It's a sheep. <laughs> it's a sheep. Yes, it's a sheep. <laughs> Goats do have smaller ears. If we can go to the next slide. Does this help? You can see there's a little circle with some a lighter colour around two animals. The one in the forefront is a goat. One of the reasons you can tell it's a goat is it's got smaller ears and it's got straight horns. Sheep generally have ears that flop downwards. Not all sheep have, have horns. When they do have horns, they tend to be curled. And some, some goats also have um, curled horns, but goat horns tend to be a little bit straighter. Um, other thing... Uh, the other differences are sheep tend to graze very close to the ground. They're quite short-sighted. And uh, they, they like sweet new grasses and clovers and those kinds of things, whereas goats, they will eat anything. You know that. They'll eat washing off the clothesline. <laughs> They'll eat pages out of a book. They're curious. They're foragers. They tend to eat from the top of plants. They eat leaves and twigs. Um, they'll eat from vines, they'll eat from shrubs and so on. So they're, they're nowhere nearly as particular. Sheep have strong flocking instincts. So sheep normally like to be in a mob. There's security in, in the mob, whereas goats are much more independent. Sheep usually have wool, which keeps them warm, unless they've just been shorn. Whereas goats tend to have hair and they seek shelter from the cold. In fact, one of the reasons why the ancient shepherds used to separate their sheep and goats at night was that the goats needed to be kept close to one another to stay warm. Whereas the sheep didn't need that. So the sheep could actually stay outside in a fold. The goats often had to be brought into the house, the, the ground level of the house, so they'd stay warm. Sheep have a divided upper lip, whereas goats have an undivided upper lip. Goats also tend to stink. They smell them. They have um, scent glands underneath their tails. The male goats tend to smell a lot worse than the, the nannies, um, especially as they're sort of moving into sexual maturity. Sheep don't have 
scent glands around their toes, but they do have scent glands between their toes, believe it or not. Now, I don't, I don't know whether you're going to sort of get down on the ground and take a whiff to <laughs> see if you can work out which is sheep and which are goats. But the other thing is, and you can't really tell this by looking at them, but sheep have 54 chromosomes and goats have 60. Now, that's something I didn't know, even though I studied agriculture when I was in high school. I didn't know that. But it's not always easy, particularly for someone who's not an expert, to tell the difference between sheep and goats. And definitely the audience who are listening to Jesus, and it was actually his disciples because they'd asked him a question about the end times. In Matthew 25, he talks about the end times and towards the end of that chapter, this is where he makes the now famous statement about sheep and goat nations. You'll find that in Matthew 25, verses 31 to uh, 44. I'm just going to um, read part of that for our purposes today. I'm reading verses uh, 32 to 36. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison. And you came to me. Of course, we know that the goat nations are going to be separated because they didn't do any of those things. Remember the righteous say to the king, when did we see you in any of these situations? And Jesus, the king, replies, as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, so too you did it to me. Now, there are many different interpretations of, of this. It is clearly something which is eschatological, that is, it points towards the, the end times. And uh, many uh, commentators, theologians, say that th this is really about how the nations treat those who become Christians during the tribulation period. The brethren that Jesus is talking about are the Christians. They're people who become Christians during the tribulation period. Some nations would treat them well. Some nations would treat them poorly. And that's the basis on which whole nations are judged. Other interpreters look at this and say, look, this is actually pointing to something we should be doing in the here and now. As nations... We should be looking after those who, for whatever reason, are not as well off as we are ourselves. I want to expand on this interpretation a little. There's a prophecy in Micah. In Micah chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. And it is a little bit in a way, 
similar to what Jesus was saying in Matthew 25. Micah chapter 4 verses 3 to 4. He shall judge between many peoples, and that word can be translated nations, and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. The reason why I say that word peoples can be translated nations is that it is quite similar to a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, where the word nations is used. Now, I, I had a look at, I don't know, about 15 or 20 different translations. Most translations used the word peoples. I only found one translation that had used the word nations. But I think because of the similarity with Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4, it's fairly safe for me to say that word peoples refers to the nations. And there's a bit of a link there in that case between the eschatological statement in Micah chapter 4 and that in Matthew chapter 25. So there's something here about nations, not just individuals, all right? So we live not just as individuals, we live as communities, ultimately as a nation. Now that expression, um, sitting or living under his vine and under his fig tree, a fairly simple expression and it might not mean a lot to us because most of us don't have a grapevine or a fig tree. But this was a symbol in ancient times of peace and prosperity. Grapevines and fig trees are long-lived um, plants. They live a long, long time. Like They can live hundreds of years. Grapevines require a lot of tending. They don't bear in the early years, but they, they have to be pruned carefully and often. And in some climates, they've even, you've even got to prune out leaves that shade the bunches of grapes because you've got to get a lot of sunshine on them. So grapevines really don't thrive unless you have peace and security. Because if you have peace and security, then you can give them the attention that they need to eventually produce abundant fruit. But in those eastern countries, not only was the grapevine used to produce grapes, used also to produce raisins, wine of course, but it was also, the juice was also boiled down to create a, a syrup. And uh, grapes, figs and dates were the source of, if you like, sugars of sweetness in their civilization. So the grape was very important in terms of its fruit. To have lots of grapes was indicative of 
by faith and prosperity. But also, in the hot summer, the grapevine provided shade. And so people would gather under the grapevine. The fig tree is, in some ways, quite similar. It doesn't bear in its early years, or it certainly doesn't bear a decent crop in its early years. It has a taproot that goes deeply into the earth. It takes quite a while for that to grow. Uh, the fig is, is a, uh, has a, a very high sugar content and uh, they used to pick the figs and they would dry them and compress them into like little bricks and they're able to preserve them that way. And so if you're on a journey, you'd pull out your figs and you could eat a few figs and because of the high sugar content, of course, that would give you energy for, for the journey. So the fig tree was another important indicator of peace and prosperity and also it provided shade in the hot summer because it's deciduous, it lets the sun come through um, in the winter time. And incidentally, the fig normally had two crops, an early crop and then a, and then a main crop as well. So this is a metaphor for living in peace and prosperity. When it's used in the context of a nation, it's actually talking about all the people of the nation living in peace and prosperity. There's another eschatological um, prophecy in Zechariah <coughs> chapter 3 in verses 8 through to 10. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbour under his vine, and under his fig tree. Again, it's talking about end times, the end of human history. Some commentators suggest that the branch refers to the first coming of Jesus and that the stone represents the second coming of Jesus. Because Jesus is a cornerstone, right? The church is built on Jesus the cornerstone, so he will always be the cornerstone. And I think that's a relatively good way of looking at it, that uh, when Jesus came, he made people aware of the kingdom of God. Most of his preaching, a lot of his preaching was about the kingdom of God. When he healed people, they got a taste of what it was going to be like in eternity. When Jesus returns and fully consummates his victory on the cross, there'll be no sickness, there'll be no weeping, there'll be no wars. That's what that reference to um, swords being turned into plowshares is about using our technology for the purposes of peace and not, not warfare. So there will be peace. This is what we get to look forward to 
human history is ended. It's interesting that this metaphor of the vine and fig tree only appears four times in the Bible. It's in 1 Kings 4. I'm going to talk about that shortly. It's in Micah 4.4. 4, and it's in Zechariah 3 um, verse 10. It's also referred to in a negative context in 2 Kings 18 when the Assyrian king Sennacherib was um, battling or warring against Hezekiah, I think it was Hezekiah. And uh, the representatives of the king of Assyria are, are taunting the people and they're saying, you turn against your king and you come over to me and you'll be able to live under your vine and your fig tree. It was an empty promise, of course. And so it's, it's there in a kind of negative context. But there are th those are the only four references. However, it was a really important motif or metaphor for people in ancient Israel. So we can see that Jesus is talking about sheep and goat nations. On one interpretation, it's a judgment before Jesus finally establishes his kingdom forever. On other interpretations, it represents a pattern for nations today. Now, what might lead us to that interpretation is the reference in 1 Kings chapter 4. Because in history there has actually been a sheep nation. As far as we know, only one. There's only ever been one sheep nation. It was a nation built by King Solomon. He built on his inheritance from King David. And if you have a read of 1 Kings chapter 4, I've just quoted verses 24 to 25 on the screen so that the font's not so small that you can't read it. I'm just going to read from uh, verses 20 through to verse 25 because this is a description of how Israel lived, at least in the early reign of Solomon. We know that later in life he actually turned away. He was persuaded to um, build places of worship and create idols for the wives that he'd married from outside of Israel in contravention, of course, to, to law. And we also know that at the end of his reign, he overtaxed people. It became a terrible burden. So things kind of went a bit awry towards the end of the reign of Solomon. But up until that point of time, he had established a kingdom characterised by peace and prosperity. So reading 1 Kings 4 verses 20 through to 25. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, and 100 sheep, 
besides deer, gazelles, roebucks and fatted fowl. Wouldn't have been too bad to sit at table with him, eh? <laughs> For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river from Tifshar even to Gaza. Namely over all the kings on this side of the river and he had peace on every side all around him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. So Solomon actually did it. There was no want in Judah or Israel during the reign of Solomon. There was peace because he secured the borders. There was prosperity because every family unit, and they would have been extended households made up not just of mum and dad, but with all the cousins, the aunties, the uncles, all the servants. They're all part of the household. They were able to live under the vine and under the fig tree, which meant they had that long, long period of peace and prosperity. And this is what they experienced, not as individuals, but as a nation. So it's happened once in human history. So Solomon, in a sense, already fulfilled the eschatological promises that we read uh, there in, in, in Micah and in Zechariah. He's already fulfilled it. But guess what? It wasn't sustained. It wasn't sustained because he went off the rails and we know that the whole of Israel went off the rails. We know that when we read the uh, books of the prophets. Our reasonable response, I think, is to start building a sheep nation. To do what we can to build a sheep nation. Now, I happen to think that the most important institution in building a sheep nation is not government, but it's actually business. And the reason is this, only business can create wealth. Only business can create wealth. People will come out of poverty when they have sustainable, meaningful, remunerated employment. And that's only gonna happen through business. It doesn't happen through government. I know governments employ a lot of people, but they've got to pay for those people somehow. And sooner or later, even if the government's printing a lot of money, sooner or later, it has to be paid for out of the wealth that is created in the nation. And it only happens through business. Now, that doesn't mean that we should expect business to pay the social welfare bill. Right? When business is thriving, there shouldn't be a social welfare bill. The government shouldn't be spending the many, many billions of dollars that they currently spend on social welfare and government provision of other things. Government should be primarily focused on providing security, not prosperity, but on providing security. It's business which is the foundation of prosperity. The least we can do to make a contribution to building a sheep nation is to pray for business. And for those of you in business or with aspirations 
to go in business, interview, good on you. It's a pretty tough gig. I speak for a lot of people in business. And many people we see today who appear to be successful have actually got some stories of failure to share as well. I know great Christians in business who have been bankrupted. They've bounced back because of the entrepreneurial wisdom that they have. It is a pretty tough gig. I think it's tough for the very reason that it is the basis of building a sheep nation and Satan doesn't want sheep nations. Because Satan doesn't want people to flourish. God wants people to flourish. We know that. We go back to Genesis 1, 2 and 3. And the underlying theme in those three chapters is human flourishing. So of course Satan doesn't want to see nations flourish. He doesn't want to see sheep nations. God has a different perspective altogether. I just want to finish by reference to the very first president of the United States, George Washington. And, and I think knowing something about his perspective helps us understand the American psyche, or at least up until very recent <coughs> years. Not long after he became president, George Washington <coughs> visited Newport, Rhode Island. And this was in August of 1790. I think the nation was established in 1787 and George Washington was a duly elected the first president. Now in, in uh, Newport, Rhode Island, there was a community of about 300 Jews and uh, their leader wrote a welcome letter to George Washington. And this in part was his reply. May the children of the stock of Abraham, and he's quoting from their letter when he uses that expression. May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants, while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. May the Father of all mercies scatter light and not darkness upon our paths, and make us all in our several vocations useful here and in his own due time and way everlasting, everlastingly happy. Don't you love that? He, he's got that reference there to, to the sheep nation. Very interesting. And of course he tried to emulate the notion of the vine and the fig tree on his own property, Mount Vernon. After he'd completed his second term, he was pressed to um, do another term as, as president. You could do that back in those days, but he chose not to. He chose to retire. And in his retirement address, this is one of the things he wrote. I'm once more seated under my own vine and fig tree and hope to spend the remainder of my days in peaceful retirement, making political pursuits yield to the more rational amusement of cultivating the earth. Actually, I love the way they used to write back then. It's so prosaic. We've become dreadful, dreadful, dreadful communicators. And all the rot set in after about 1960. I've traced it. I've, I've done my own research. <laughs> after about 1960, people were no longer able to write good prose. 
Most people today can't read a sentence if it's got more than 50 words in it. <laughs> it's true. They can't read a sentence if it's got more than 50 words in it. But anyway, that's, a, that, that's an aside. You know, we, we can be very critical of the United States. But you see, that peace and prosperity thinking, the sheep nation thinking, was there at its foundation. And even though, you know, Satan has rocked that nation so much, especially over the last, well, two presidencies, because he doesn't want to see a sheep nation. Of all the nations on the earth, America probably had the most potential because the idea was sort of back of mind, maybe even front of mind, when the United States was established as a republic. Incidentally, George Washington feared what would happen if political parties came into being. <laughs> he, he wrote on that as well. And um, boy, oh boy, oh boy, we can see the great damage that is being done by political parties in the United States today. But see, it's a tool that Satan is using to thwart God's desire for a sheep nation. See, even their role as a so-called you know, international policeman, which they get pilloried for that, but even that you can trace all the way back to this notion of living under the vine and the fig tree in peace and prosperity. You read George Washington too, his thoughts on the right to bear arms and so on. It, it, it's really all focused on this kind of thing where people are not oppressed, not even by their own government. Just amazing. It's, it's, a, it's a great read. I find it very encouraging. So the upshot of it all is this. Yes, when we read Matthew 25, when we read in Malachi, when we read in Zechariah, about this metaphor or motif of the vine and the fig tree, it is eschatological. It is telling us something about what it will be like to live in eternity with Jesus Christ. But Solomon did it. Solomon did it. The founding fathers of the United States at least had it in mind when they established the Republic in the first place. I think one of the challenges to us today is to do what we can to establish a sheep nation. As you know, my friend Dave Hodgson is basically devoting his life to this objective now. For those of us who are not in business, I'm not in business, right? I'm, I'm a pastor. I can pray. I can bring business folk together and encourage them. I can do my bit. The other thing we can do is to pray. And, and I, I've been, I'm just working through some issues about how, how do we pray today in such a way as to begin to pull down all of those barriers that have been built against the sheep nation. And I think I might be ready to, to share some of this next week. If not next week, it'll be within the next few weeks. Because the very least we can do is to pray, to intercede, but we want to do it in, a, in a, an impactful way, in a way that will actually make 
like a vision. So that's something which is coming up. I believe in the sheep nation. I believe that business has a critical role. And one of the reasons why it is so tough to be in business is Satan is out to get you. If there's no business, we cannot have a sheep nation. If businesses are falling over, we cannot have a sheep. It will never come because of government. Governments cannot create a sheep nation. Governments ought to be focused on that whole thing of security. They should be keeping our national borders safe and they should be keeping us safe from those among us who don't want us to be safe. That's their primary role. Their primary role is not to be handing out money. Anyway, I can see everyone is looking rather subdued. <laughs> Solomon did it, all right? Hey? No, no, I'm trying, I'm trying not to torture you. 